This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at writing the innovation cycle. Why fast, frequent, frugal failure can be a recipe to innovation success. The types of brainwaves necessary for any of us to channel to innovate successfully. And what to expect from the next wave of innovation in the world of healthcare. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Dr. Christopher Wasden. Executive Director of the Sorensen Center for Discovery and Innovation at the University of Utah. As a global thought leader on innovation and digital health, he has written and published over 60 articles, book chapters, and reports on the topic. He speaks often on how innovation and digital health are transforming the practice of medicine, the delivery of care, and the creation of an entirely new wellness paradigm. Dr. Wasden is a named inventor on 11 issued patents, and he's been a leader in 10 different startups, where he developed many of his ideas around the innovation cycle and life cycle, and how fast, frequent, frugal failure accelerates innovation. These thoughts are outlined in his forthcoming book, Tension, The Energy of Innovation, How Harnessing Tension Fuels Your Creative Genius. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wasden. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. So let's kick things off today talking about what you're doing at the University of Utah. When I first reached out to you, the podcast was in its infancy and you were still at PricewaterhouseCoopers. So what's the Sorensen Center's mission and what can you tell us about your newish role there? Sure. So at PwC, I was the global healthcare innovation leader. And as a result of that, uh, I got approached by the dean of the business school here at the University of Utah because he had uh, had a benefactor who had given him millions of dollars to create an innovation center, but he hadn't been able to find someone to lead and run it. So he approached me to become the first executive director of the Sorensen Center for Discovery and Innovation. And I've spent the last year or so figuring out what our mission and vision is. And fundamentally, our missions really focus on five things. Uh, We focus on educating students as well as executives around how to become more innovative and how to solve tough problems through innovation and innovation thinking and discipline. The second thing we do is we coach. We coach executives, we coach students on how to become better entrepreneurs and innovators. Uh, We do consulting. So this last year I've had about 40 students work on a dozen different consulting projects where we work with a combination of large global organizations, as well as with some local organizations, as and that also would include startup companies, to help them solve some of their innovation challenges. Uh, we also run a global challenge event called the Games for Health Challenge. And this last year, we had 190 students from 14 different schools and universities from four different countries around the world that competed for $50,000 of prize money to invent games that promoted social, emotional, mental, and physical health. And then the last thing we do is we do inventions. We, we help students invent. We help others invent. We do some inventions ourselves. Uh, 
Uh, and so that's really the five-fold mission of our innovation center. And then with that, our expectation is that we'll be able to help hundreds of students and hundreds of executives uh, apply the disciplines of innovation to their businesses and the problems that they're trying to solve to create new technologies, new business models, new solutions, and new companies. Okay, very nice. Um, let me ask you about one of the phrases that you use often, which is fast, frequent, frugal failure. Why do you call this writing the innovation cycle, and what three things does fast, frequent, frugal failure force companies or teams to do? Yeah, so when I talk about the innovation cycle, uh, what I've found through my doctoral dissertation as well as the work I've done as an entrepreneur and innovation consultant is that um, innovation occurs in a cycle. Unlike strategy, where we tend to think of things in value chains and kind of linear progression, predictability, uh, innovation is a, a cyclical activity where you cycle through different uh, steps or or elements of the cycle. And I call this the innovation cycle where the genesis of innovation is failure. <clears throat> now, all failure doesn't lead to innovation. Uh, it's only those failures that create significant pain that really drive the innovation process because that pain creates a state that we don't like, and then we can envision a better state without the pain, and that tension between the current state and the desired state becomes the energy source that really powers innovation. So without tension, you can't really innovate. Now, what innovation does, though, is the innovation is supposed to eliminate the failure of the pain and thereby the tension that then leads to growth. And that growth, if you're successful, actually creates failure and pain for somebody else. So if you think about it from the perspective of the cell phone industry or the smartphone industry, you know, Apple's uh, dealing with the failure and pain of the BlackBerry technology with its limits around voice, its limits around access to the internet, its limits around uh, using apps, uh, and then being able to use it as a social media platform enabled there to be a tension there that, that Apple successfully harnessed. And by harnessing that tension, they then innovated in novel ways, came out with the Apple III, the, the iPhone three, and then you know, the next versions, four and five and six, and as they grew, then that created failure and pain for BlackBerry. And so this cycle was referred to by Schumpeter as the cycle of creative destruction. And what I've done is I've actually created more colorful descriptions around the different elements of the creative destruction cycle, and I call that the innovation cycle. Now, the reason that I focus on fast, frequent, frugal failure is that when you're an innovator, what you're trying to do is identify that failure and then rapidly iterate through that cycle. Think about pedaling. You're trying to pedal in that cycle as fast as possible because as you do that now, you're able to learn very quickly. And you're trying to uh, achieve this sort of failure on a fast, frequent basis so you learn quickly, but you're not trying to maximize failure in the sense of trying to overinvest in failure. You're trying to actually minimize the investment in failure so that you can have more failures at lower cost and thereby you can learn more quickly. And so that's how those things come together through the innovation cycle. Okay, nice. And, and you may have answered this partially in the answer to the last question, but I'll go ahead and ask it anyway. 
So the, the notion of embracing failure as a way of learning what works and what doesn't has gotten to be very popular, certainly in the software world with the popularity of the Lean Startup by Eric Ries. So the idea has gotten to be so widespread that there has kind of started to be a backlash to the idea that embracing failure is a positive. So what would you say to people who maybe thumb their nose at the idea of failure as necessary to learn and move innovation forward? So this is where I focus on tension. And tension is an, a powerful concept with regards to how you really power and provide energy to innovation. You know, the greatest tension we all face in our lives is between mindlessly running the business of today versus mindlessly creating the business of tomorrow. And the organizations that are the most innovative are able to harness that tension in a productive way such that they can mindlessly run today's business while mindfully creating tomorrow's business. However, most organizations are not very good at that. They have a lean discipline that really focuses on eliminating failure. And in fact, if you go back to the, the definition of Lean Six Sigma, it means that you will only fail three times in one million attempts. And so the whole purpose of Lean Six Sigma is to avoid failure as if it's a bad thing because it hurts efficiency, it hurts profits, it hurts customer satisfaction. And, and what we do is we create mindless processes and systems so that we can unplug anybody out of that process and then plug anybody else into that process and get the same outcome with little to no failure. Now, Lean Six Sigma is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. And in fact, it's the only thing that allows an innovation to scale and become successful. However, brilliant, creative, disruptive, radical innovations are not born through a Lean Six Sigma discipline. They're born through a system of innovation discipline that realizes that failure is the genesis of good ideas and that we learn most rapidly as we harness this failure and the tension associated with it to become more innovative. You know, the CEO of Pixar, Ed Catmull, who's a University of Utah alum, said, if you aren't experiencing failure, then you are making a far worse mistake. You are being driven by the desire to avoid it. So I think we need to put failure in its place. And we need to understand that when we have a well-defined and well-understood opportunity that's worthy of scaling, then a Lean Six Sigma discipline that focuses on avoiding failure and having only three failures in a million attempts is the right discipline for that innovation and that opportunity. But when we're trying to create new innovations, we need to apply a different discipline, not a lean discipline, but an innovation discipline. And that innovation discipline is focusing on getting a lot of failures at very low cost that allow us to learn quickly and becomes the feedstock of innovation. So I think that's how we need to think about failure differently, depending on where we are on what I call the innovation life cycle. Are you at the discovery, incubation, and acceleration phases of the innovation life, life cycle, or are you at the scaling phase of the innovation life cycle? If you're at the scaling phase, then failure should be avoided, and you should be applying lean discipline. But if you're at these other phases, then you're applying more of an innovation discipline that's developing, creating, and harnessing failure in novel ways. So let me shift gears and talk about the human brain for a second. It's something we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes of the podcast. 
but never specifically about the types of brainwaves necessary to innovate successfully. So what do we know about beta, alpha, and gamma waves that can be applied to the innovation process? Yeah, so I think fundamentally we need to understand that our brain is biased towards mindlessness, not towards mindfulness. And the reason for that is that mindfulness requires a lot of oxygen, a lot of glucose, a lot of resources to be mindful. And so think about your, your average drive to work, okay? When you drive to work, you're driving mindlessly. You're not driving mindfully. The first time, maybe the second time you drove to work, it was a mindful activity. But once you've created the right mental map of how you get to work, your brain automatically takes that map and then turns driving to work into a mindless activity. And so you go the same way every time, takes the same amount of time, and it's very efficient. When we think about being creative, though, we can't apply mindless mental maps that have worked for other problems. We actually have to create new mental maps. And creating new mental maps is an entirely different process it's a mindful process, and it requires different sorts, different areas of the brain, as well as generating different sort of brain waves uh, that result from that. So, for example, when we use an existing map, mental map, to drive mindlessly to work, we're using beta waves. Okay, we're we're being very efficient, following an existing procedure. But when we want to create that new map, the first time that we went to work, for example. We're using alpha and gamma rays, uh, brain waves, in order to do that. And so what we end up having to do is we have to settle our mind down. We have to take it out of beta wave mode and settle it down so it can be more open to new ideas. And then we have to come up with those new ideas by moving our body, by uh, getting our brain to, to use the oxygen and use the glucose in such a way that now it can start to attack and grab onto these new ideas to create these new mental maps. And so when you look at the, the brain, the brain is, is purposely designed to avoid risk, to avoid danger. Uh, we have our, our fight or flight mechanisms that are associated with the uh, limbic system and the non-conscious brain. And so we need to understand that the brain is designed to, to take problems solve them quickly, mindlessly as possible, and then to move on because that's efficient. But to be creative, we have to use different parts of the brain that generate different types of brain waves that come up with new mental maps. You know, it's interesting when you look at the biography of Steve Jobs, uh, every time he wanted to be creative or inventive and talk to people about doing new and, and uh, different things, he would go out on a walk. Why is that? Well, it's the same reason that people say that I come up with my best ideas when I'm in the shower, or I come up with the best ideas when I'm just falling asleep, or I come up with the best ideas when I'm mowing my lawn. It's because what you've done is you've moved your brain out of the beta wave mode into the alpha and gamma wave modes, and it's in those modes where the non-conscious brain is able to understand and comprehend the immensity of the universe and from that, then pluck out solutions you've already thought of, but that your uh, beta waves are blocking you from actually seeing. And so you have to move your body, move your mind in such a way that you now are in the alpha and gamma zones so that you can then innovate in what we call bag time.
uh, moving from beta to alpha to gamma, which is where you get the best ideas. And so is this something that you actively teach in your, in your courses at the University of Utah, how to stimulate those brainwaves? Exactly. So I actually do facilitated innovation as part of my course uh, where I have students do activities that will generate alpha and gamma brainwaves so that they'll come up with better ideas. And, and what would be what might be an example or two of one of those activities? So we'll, uh, what we do is we'll focus on what is the problem we're trying to address. And so when we do that, that tends to be a bit more of a beta activity. You're going to identify problems you have. You're going to rack and stack which are the most important. Uh, and you're going to do that as a, as a group, okay? Mm -hmm. And then what I tell them to do is, all right, now what I want you to do is get up and walk around campus for 15 minutes. And I want you to think about those problems that we just talked about. And I want you to come up with some solutions. And then I want you to write down five of those solutions on a piece of paper all by yourself. I don't even want you to share those ideas with anybody else at this stage. I just want you to think about what you think are the logical solutions. And then I bring them all back together. And then I have one person share with another person those ideas. And then we call this ideas having sex. Okay, because what happens is when you when you have two ideas that come together, then they create a third idea. And that third idea tends to be better than the other two ideas were on their own. And then after we do that, we then have the students take and prioritize which they think are the best ideas that are the children that were born from the coming together of these original ideas. And then we take those two people and then combine them with two other people. And then we have those ideas come together and have children, which are then the next ideas. And so by having them go out and think individually, move their bodies, move their minds, come up with ideas, combine them, and then, again, go out again, walk around, meet with some other people, uh, we're applying the principles of interaction, variation, and selection, which are the three primary ingredients for innovation. And we're doing it in such a way that we're moving your physical body and using your mind in ways that are focused on generating the right sort of brain waves required in order to be creative. I love that. We've had we've had profanity on the podcast before, but we've never had reference to ideas having sex. So that, that that's fantastic. Um, so so let me switch gears and talk about healthcare a little bit. It's one of your areas of expertise, Doctor Wasden, and you recently tweeted out a link to an article about an Accenture study that found that two-thirds of insurance company executives expect wearables to have a significant impact on the industry. How do you see wearables changing not just the insurance industry, but the healthcare industry as a whole? Yeah, so I think, first of all, you have to realize and admit two facts about healthcare. I'll actually, I'll say three facts about healthcare. The first is that over half of what doctors do is not based upon any empirical evidence, research, or science. It's just based upon tradition. The second is that over 50% of all healthcare costs are associated with poor health behaviors that if they were corrected would eliminate half the healthcare spending we have in this country. And the, the third fact is that there is no feedback loop in healthcare. If you're visiting with your doctor once or twice a year, even four times a year, any information you give him or he or she gives you is not being given in such a way that it provides feedback that will ever change behavior. So 
if you believe all of that, which I obviously do, then you start to look at wearables and you say, how can we use wearables in novel ways to actually gather data to provide better empirical evidence about what works and what doesn't? How can we um, also then use this technology in ways that uh, are able to change behaviors because the problem that we have is, is poor health behaviors? And then how do we change those behaviors through novel feedback loops that are not trying to occur once or twice a year, but actually are trying to occur several times a day, where you're giving people feedback in the moment with regards to their behaviors that then move them to change behaviors around their activity, their exercise, their social interactions, their diet, their sleep, uh, their medication adherence. So if you can provide that feedback loop in the moment, you can actually change behaviors more effectively than if you don't have a feedback loop at all. So what I've done is I've created a behavior change model based upon other theories that I've uh, focused on, especially sense-making theory, that says that there are five pillars of behavior change. And you have to have these five pillars of behavior change in operation if you want to change behavior. And digital health technology, which includes wearables, are the um, – most effective new technology to do that. The five pillars of behavior change are first, you have to guide people towards the sort of behavior that you want. So let's just use steps as an example. So you need to first uh, help people realize the number of steps they should be taking every day as a form of a good, healthy behavior. And so a lot of research has suggested that number is around 10,000 steps a day. So what you do is you, you guide them towards that goal of 10,000 steps, and then you provide them with a wearable device that tells them how close they are to achieving those 10,000 steps. And by guiding them now, you're providing a cue that says, okay, you have a goal of 10, you're only at 5,000, now I'm going to give you an in-app message, I'm going to give you information on your device, I might give you information on your wrist, that all now creates a cue it acts as a trigger that says, okay, you haven't achieved your goal yet. You're 5,000 short. Then the next thing we do is once we've created that cue, we then provide them some tools that enable them to now achieve the goal that they need to achieve, which they haven't, which is based upon the cue. And so we enable that through software, through applications, through gamification. And so we, we have an app now that says, if, your goal is 10 and you've only done five, here's the things you need to do next, okay? So that enables them now to achieve that goal that we're guiding them towards. Now, for people to consistently use the, the guidance and the enablement, we need to provide some motivation. And we do that motivation through a combination of things, but they all tend to be things that are focused in the science of positive psychology. And, and we then use gaming mechanics around that enablement to reward them or to punish them associated with their guiding uh, behaviors so that they actually are now motivated to do that. And so you see all sorts of things where you can have messaging that you can give people that congratulates them for what they do. You can have social support that guides them towards that where the social support encourages them to do that. You can have financial rewards or financial penalties associated with uh, your, your Walgreens points that you get for coupons for steps that you do. But you've got that third pillar, which is motivating. Those three create 
a cycle, if you will, similar to my innovation cycle, that really drive behavior. Embedded within those, you have the two other pillars of behavior change, and those are supporting and educating. And too often we think that if we just educate people, then they'll change their behavior and they'll become healthier. But what we know is that some of the most educated people are, uh, about health on the planet are healthcare providers, and they have bad behaviors too. So clearly education isn't adequate to change behavior. And so what we find is that education needs to be embedded and not explicit in the behavior change, that people get bored of educational behavior change uh, focus, but education needs to be embedded and organic in your behavior change guiding, enabling, and motivating. And then the fifth pillar is supporting. You need to have a supportive infrastructure, and that supportive infrastructure needs to be uh, other people, other systems, uh, the framing of health within uh, your life to really support you in those behavior changes that you want to do. I'll give you one example that I think is pretty powerful. United Healthcare wanted to decrease the cost of diabetes. And the best way to do that is to have people never become diabetic. And so they identified people who are pre-diabetic, and they said, I'll tell you what, we're going to do an experiment. We're going to take half of you that are pre-diabetic, and we're going to take you through a traditional education program to teach you about how to remain pre-diabetic and the consequences of becoming diabetic. You're going to come to a healthcare center. You're going to be educated by healthcare professionals. You're going to do this for several weeks. Uh, and then we will measure to see whether or not you have actually changed your lifestyle and your behaviors to become healthier so that you remain pre-diabetic. United Healthcare, the difference between a diabetic and a pre-diabetic is about $2,000 a month. So huge economic cost, or $2,000 a year. Huge economic cost if they can keep somebody to be pre-diabetic. Then they took the other cohort of people and they said, I'll tell you what we're going to do with you. We're going to have you participate um, in watching a reality TV show. And the reality TV show is going to be like Biggest Loser. You're going to see people on TV that are pre-diabetic, and they're trying to change their lives in order to become or to remain pre-diabetic and not become diabetic. And what they're going to do to change their behaviors, they're going to learn new behaviors around physical activity and exercise and diet and sleep. And then we're going to have all of you at home use the same weight scales, the same apps, the same activity monitors, the same tools around diet uh, and sleep so that now you can play along at home with the people on TV that you're watching every week. Then after the, the several weeks uh, passed, we're then going to measure your behaviors and see whether or not you have changed your behaviors by participating and watching a reality TV show to become healthier and remain pre-diabetic. So they run this experiment, and lo and behold, what do they find? People that participated in a reality TV show with digital health devices where they played along were significantly more effective in changing their behavior to remain diabetic than people that went to traditional pre-diabetes training programs. Okay? So that's the power of wearables, the power of digital health in changing behavior. Okay, great, great anecdotes, and and let me stick with the with the healthcare uh, area for another question. This may sound a little far fetched, but I wanted to get your opinion on it. Google Ventures Bill Maris made headlines earlier this year when he talked about humans living to be five hundred. 
famed venture capitalist Peter Thiel has even gone a step beyond that and talked about humans living forever. Do you think either one of those things is really something to be on the lookout for? And are you comfortable with the idea? Yeah. So I think, first of all, you have to define what they mean by living forever uh, versus living for 500 versus living to be 120 years old. So when you look at what how Ray Kurzweil talks about living forever, uh, you know, he talks about how as we approach um, the uh, singularity where computers are as or smarter than people, uh, he sees that you can actually download your consciousness into a computer. And by downloading your consciousness into a computer, you can live forever within this computer brain or system so that your identity uh, lives forever, even though your body may not. So that's kind of one definitional element. The second definitional element has to do with whether or not your body lives forever or for a long period of time. And again, if you look at Ray Kurzweil's view of this, and Ray Kurzweil is an advisor to Google, uh, and then the people you know, behind a lot of this stuff are the Google Ventures guys and the, the, the Google um, uh, Chris, or, um, uh, program that they've got going on there. But, but he said, look, you know, we already see that we can replace your knees, we can replace your hips, we can replace uh, other parts of your body with mechanical parts or synthetic parts or even biological parts. So you've got artificial bladders that are actually biologically built on a scaffold made up um, of your cells, okay? So, so while they're uh, a replacement part, they're made out of your cells. And so, again, a Ray Kurzweil view there is that we can just replace the parts of you that have broken down with other parts that are made out of you. And his point is that on the, in the course of a year, all the cells in your body are regenerated anyway. So, are you still you after 12 months when there's none of the cells in you, you know, 12 months later that started with you 12 months earlier? And so that gets into the definition of who we are. And if we create a bionic person that can live a long time, um, you know, is that still you or, or not? And again, your consciousness is still you, even though some of the body parts might be synthetic, might be mechanical, might be your DNA, but recreated outside of your body and then put back into your body, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, then there's the other kind of third element, which is you know, living forever, saying that we can create uh, pills and other technologies that will allow you with your consciousness, with all your body parts, to actually live a long time. Um, so, so think about it in those three terms, all right? So then the next thing is we have to say, okay, well, what seems to be reasonable? Well, we know that about 200 years ago, at the time of the Revolutionary War, you know, the average life expectancy of a, a, a person was around 35 years. Okay? Then fast forward about 100 years, and the average life expectancy was about 55 years. And, and even you know, 70 years ago, when we created the Social Security system, uh, the average life expectancy was less than 65 years, which is why we created retirement in 65 years, because we thought hardly anybody would actually reach retirement, and therefore Social Security wouldn't cost us hardly anything because most people wouldn't make it to 65, right? Mm -hmm. 
Today, now the average life expectancy is around 85 years. So in 200 years, we've over doubled life expectancy. So I think the question that's interesting now is, uh, you know, can we double life expectancy from 85 years to 170 years, okay, um, over the next 100 years, like we've, we've already done? So my grandparents all lived into their 90s. My expectation is that I'm going to live to be at least 90 because all my grandparents did. And in fact, my expectation is I'm probably going to live to be 120. And if you look at uh, some recent research that came out, they said that the first person to live to be 150 years has already been born. Okay? And if you look you know, biblically, um, people like Abraham, Moses, are, are documented within the Bible to have lived 120 years. So if you believe the biblical account, within the last 4,000 years, we've had people that regularly lived to be in their 120s. So for me, it's not a huge stretch to believe that we've got a lot of people that are on the earth today that are going to live to be 120 years. And again, a lot of that's because of technology. Okay. Um, and then if you believe the even more ancient biblical record, there's people that live to be Methuselah 900 years old, okay? So, so we have evidence to suggest that people can live a lot longer than they currently live today. We know that we've over doubled and almost tripled life expectancy in the last 200 years. So I think that there is a lot of upside with regards to how long people can live. Now, whether or not that's 500 years or forever, again, I think part of that is definitional with regards to how we actually define living forever or for long periods of time. But clearly, there's a lot of opportunity. And when you look at Google's point of view here, and I think this is a very important one, you know, their claim is that we have way over-invested in treating disease, and we've way under-invested in increasing longevity. And their point is that if you have someone who has lung cancer or breast cancer, some sort of cancer, and look at what our technologies have been able to do about increasing life expectancy, you know, in general or on average, they're only increasing life expectancy by two to five years, okay? And that, that additional five years of life expectancy, so let's kind of look at the more positive case, you look at how much we spend on that. And the ROI on that is not very good. But if we look at increasing the life expectancy of people who don't have terminal diseases, and if we can increase life expectancy by 20 or 50 years, the ROI on that is, is tremendous. So, so they say, why don't we focus on higher ROI opportunities, which is substantially increasing the life expectancy of people who will never have terminal diseases, but could live for an additional 20 to 30 years and have very productive lives where they add to society. Okay, nice. So I'm going to bring it back to a far less existential question. There is reference to your book, Writing the Innovation Cycle, on the Sorensen Center website and elsewhere online. It sounds like the book is in the works, but maybe is not a finished product yet. What can you tell us about the book at this point in time? Yeah, so the, the book has been... Uh, in development for some time. It actually uh, started in the work that I did for my doctoral dissertation on the role that tensions play in the creative process. And um, the innovation cycle and the innovation life cycle I've talked about earlier in our discussion. 
And so the, the metaphor is biking. And if you look at, at how the cycle works, you know, discovery is like mountain biking. Uh, you need a bike that has a frame that's rugged with disc brakes, wide knobby tires, a gearing that allows you to go up steep hills as well as down, uh, um, you know, treacherous climbs. And so as you explore and expand your horizons, you're in very risky terrain that requires a very rugged bike that was built for failure. As you then take that idea that is discovered into incubation, which is all about eliminating technical risk, you then transition from a mountain bike into some sort of a hybrid bike, a bike that can go on trails as well as on roads. And as you eliminate technical risk, you then have to figure out how to eliminate commercial risk, which is analogous to a road bike that can operate well on a flat surface. It can go up hills and, and on difficult uh, areas to climb, but they have to be flat surfaces they can't be the terrain that you would have with a mountain bike. And so that's all about accelerating the business model, which is the next phase of innovation life cycle. And then finally, when you, you figure it all out, the technology, the business opportunity, the commercial model, then you want to scale it. And scale it's like riding a stationary bike. Now, there's no wheels on it at all. There's no risk of failure that you're going to crash. You're not in difficult terrain. It's all about efficiency and, and maximizing that by adjusting the height of the seat, the depth of the seat, the handlebars, following the instructor, the spin instructor, who's going to guide you through doing things optimally to achieve the outcome that you want. So this innovation life cycle requires you to ride the innovation cycle where the different cycles correspond with the different phases of the life cycle. So that's kind of the, the metaphor, the idea behind it. I give lots of different examples, but what's interesting about all of this is the, the central idea is the role that tensions play as an energy source for innovation. And this is a counterintuitive element of the book, and in fact, we're even talking now about changing the title of the book to be Tensions, colon, The Energy of Innovation. Because what we find is that most people don't appreciate the central role that tensions play in powering innovation. If you don't have tensions in a system, then you won't be innovative. And if you don't know how to harness tensions effectively, that is, if you don't know how to take a maladaptive tension that leads to failure and chaos and challenges and transform that maladaptive tension into creative and adaptive tension, then you'll never be able to harness it in a way to really power the innovative activities. Again, going back to uh, Ed Catmull at Pixar, he published a new book called um, Creativity, Inc. And his central point in that entire book, if you read through it, is that you have to have tensions in your organization. Leaders have to promote tensions in the organization, but they have to do it in such a way that those tensions are creative and adaptive, that is, that they're productive. But if you don't have the tensions in your organization, or if the tensions that are within your organizations are maladaptive, then you'll fail. I'm reading a book right now about the failure of research in motion with BlackBerry. And the fundamental problem there was that the tensions within their organizations were maladaptive. And they didn't allow the organization to be creative and to respond creatively to the tensions that were imposed upon them by the launch of the iPhone. And the failure to harness tensions and have them power their, their new innovations they needed to come up with were at the heart 
of their failure to respond to the Apple threat when it came out. And when you look at what Apple did that was so effective is that they were able to uh, harness tensions in a productive way, in a creative way, to come up with the next generation of technology. And so the genius of organizations that are the most innovative is how they create and harness tensions to drive the innovation process. Okay, great. We'll keep an eye out for the book, Writing the Innovation Cycle, or uh, what's the what's the potential new name? Yeah, Tensions, the Energy of Innovation. Okay, nice. Well, Dr. Wasden, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about writing the innovation cycle and how companies can harness it to, to, to drive innovation. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Christopher Wasden, you can follow him on Twitter at at Chris Wasden. That's W-A-S-D-E-N. Also, be sure to look up the Sorensen Center for Discovery and Innovation at the University of Utah. Thanks once again to Dr. Christopher Wasden for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Scott Anthony of Innosite on the podcast to talk about building your very own innovation engine. We'll look at the four component pieces that drive an innovation factory, what the first 90 days of building your innovation engine should look like, and why it's important to kill zombie projects that drain valuable time and resources. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine Podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.threepillarglobal.com.